Good morning, family. Welcome home. So good to see everyone. Thank you, uh, band, for leading us in praise. We are continuing our series going through the book of Exodus. This is our fourth, fourth week. Going, man, that, that's way too early in the book of Exodus to forget how long we've been at. But it's our fourth week going through the book of Exodus. We'll be in chapter 3, so you can pull up your Bibles and flip to chapter 3 if you want to get ready. But no worries, because it will also be on the screen when we get there. But let's go to the Lord in prayer before we dive into his word. Dear Father, I thank you so much for who you are, how you love us, how you move in us, how you show us your truth through your word. Lord, I just pray for this time as we open up this book that we can see uh, a story that maybe a lot of us already know, a story that we've seen before, a story that maybe we learned in Sunday school. But I pray that we can see it in a new way, we can see it in a deeper way as we see who you are, that what you're showing us through this story is your glory and how you call your people to service. And Lord, I just pray for this time that we can understand you, know you more, love you more because of it. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When God shows up, everything changes. If you look at the Bible, you can almost break up the Bible in this kind of movement that when God shows up, things happen. When God shows up, things change. Go over to really big, at the beginning. When God shows up, what happens? He creates. He makes everything out of nothing. He makes all that there is, and he makes it with a purpose, and he makes it good. When God shows up, he saves Noah from the judgment for the, of the world. When God shows up, he makes Abram into Abraham and makes him a, a father of a great nation. Again and again, we see this theme throughout the Bible that when God shows up, things happen. Things change. And when we get to the book of Exodus, it's not any different. For the last few weeks, we've been talking about how, how uh, uh, Exodus shows us, kind of tell, indie, uh, tell diving into the end of Genesis and how it's the uh, continuation of God's people and how now they're in Egypt and they're growing and now they're suffering under uh, Pharaoh and they're, and they're crying out to God. And so far, it's, it's, it's the story about the people being faithful and how they're fearing God instead of Pharaoh and they're doing what they're supposed to do. And then right at the end of chapter 2, we get this hint that God is going to show up as it says that God heard their cries. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That he saw their afflictions and that he knew. And then when we get to chapter 3, God shows up. Actually, when we get to chapter 3, what we see in chapter 3 is that it's introducing us to the fact that God introduced himself to Moses. And everything changed because of it. It's interesting, when you look at the book of Exodus, chapters 1 and 2 really kind of cover the 400 years that the, uh, God's people were in Egypt, and now for the rest of the book, it's going to be unpacked the year of liberation, the year when God brings his people out of Egypt. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 3 as we see God showing up and introducing himself to Moses. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why is the bush not burned? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a, a good and broad land, a land flown with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, the Prezalites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the city of the people of Israel has come to me, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have not also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent to you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, uh, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he says, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Prezalites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they, shall listen, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike, the, strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that he will let you go, and I will give this people for, uh, favor in the sight of the Egyptians." And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your, on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. In that passage of Exodus chapter 3, uh, maybe a passage that we've seen many times, heard many times, that maybe you grew up hearing about how God shows up in this burning bush and talks to Moses. What are we supposed to draw from this? And I would offer just a simple statement that helps us remember, I think, what we should draw, and that's know our saving God. 
That God is revealing himself to Moses, and through Moses and through the word, he's revealing himself to us, and he's revealing himself to us in a way that we can know him, that we can have a relationship with him, that we can actually respond to his character and see who he is. And so when we read this, what should our response be is that we should know this God. We should know this God that not only saves the, uh, the, the Hebrew people from the Egyptians, but saves us, that we know our saving God. And as we read this, this, this passage in Exodus chapter 3, we see these facts, these, asset, these uh, aspects about who our God is. And that's really what I think chapter 3 is about, is about God. That when we read this, we see a fuller picture of God. And one of the first things we see is that our God is a revealing God. That our God reveals himself to us. When we think about that, we go, yeah, the Bible talks about that a lot. It talks about, like in Psalm 19, that the, the heavens declare the glories of the Lord. It talks about that in the beginning of Romans. In Romans chapter uh, 1, verses 19 and 20, it says, for what can be known of God is plain to them because of God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And it continues, Paul continues, so they are without excuse. That God has revealed himself through nature, through the world, the fact that he created. We call this general revelation the fact that anyone and everyone can actually know that there is a God. All you have to do is look up and see the stars. All you have to do is look around and see this world that's been made by someone. You just have to look at yourself and see that you reflect something something personal, and so you get this idea that this general revelation provides for us that God shows and reveals himself to us. As Paul says, we see the fact that he has, he, he's eternal and that he has this divine power, and so we get an ask, this like, clue about who God is. But that's not enough to actually truly know him, to, to have a relationship with him. And so God shows up in greater detail which we would call a specific revelation. When God shows up to Abraham, when God shows up to uh, Noah, when God speaks to his people, this is specific revelation. We, we know God through his word. That when you read his word and see how he's acted in, in, in history, how he has saved us through Jesus Christ, we know this and this is specific revelation that he provides more information to us so we can know his character and we can have a relationship with him. And so when God appears in this bush this appears to be burning, but it's not consumed. This is God showing up and providing Moses of something about who he is. That when Moses looks at this bush and he says, this is not how a bush on fire is supposed to act. Bushes on fire usually are consumed. He has lived in this wilderness for 40 years. Chances are he has seen lightning strikes and fire in this land. He knows what happens when fire hits a bush, but yet so there's something unique and something different about this. And so he looks upon this bush and he hears God call out from this bush. You know, people talk about when you, when you think about this fire that does not consume this bush, it's already telling us something about who God is. That he's revealing his character even in this image, this, this, this showing up in this fire. That this fire, this, this glory, kind of the shining glory of God is showing that he does not even need the bush to exist. Normal fire 
consumes the bush and is gone, but now this fire does not even need this bush. It's self-existent. It's sufficient on its own. It's showing us a little bit of the nature of who God is. But God shows up in this burning bush. Which of you want to impress your friends? You can say this is an instance of a phenophony. The fact that God is showing himself. It's a, it's a visible manifestation of the invisible God. You can take that, you know, share it with your friends. They'll be impressed, maybe. But people actually argue. They go, hey, is this just a phenophony or is, actually, is this the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son, showing up and revealing himself and stuff like that? Theologians have great debates like that, right? But it doesn't matter. Because either way, what, is, what is, this is saying is that God himself was there in a special way speaking to Moses calling Moses out from where he was for a specific task to, t- to, to uh, save his people. Our God is revealing God, and furthermore, not just from the bush, but how he reveals who he is to Moses. He gives Moses his name. He says, I am who I am. When Moses says, hey, who, who should I say sent me? He says, tell them I am sent you. He says, this is my name. It's this name that when you read our English Bibles, it's that capital Lord, right? Every now and then in the Old Testament, you'll come across, not every now and then, it's a lot. You'll come across Lord, and it's all caps, right? That is the name of God that we translate as Lord, but it's, that, it's what you could call Yahweh. It's, uh, there's different debatements, deba- debates about how you pronounce that. Again, if you want to impress your friends, it's the Tetragrammaton, because it's four letters in Hebrew. Again, you can take that to your friends and impress them. It's the Tetragrammaton. I just like saying that. It's just cool. But it's that it's that it's, the, it's Yahweh. It's the name of God that has the sense. It's, it's a play off the word of to be, of the verb to be. It's I am who I am. It's, it's revealing a characteristic of who God is. That when you ask who His name is, He just responds, I am. Who are you, God? I am. He, he's saying something about him. And number one, it's like this is a mystery that we cannot even begin to understand who God is, that we only understand how he reveals himself. And so he's this mysterious figure that shows himself to us enough that we can understand him, enough that we can love him, enough that we can respond to him, but we can't know him exhaustively. He is so much more than us that we can't get our arms around him. We can't get our mental arms around him and understand him. He is I am but also shows us that he's eternal and unchangeable. The fact that God can say, I am who I am, means that he's always who he is. That nothing can impact him. Nothing is going to change him. He has existed as I am forever. I am who I am, which is a great thing for us. I just, I just remember one of my memory verses in Malachi, um, <clears throat> now I can't remember it, uh, 3.16 says, For I, the Lord, your God, do not change so that you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. That's a great thing that our God does not change. Our God is not arbitrary. Our God is not fickle. Our God does not lose interest in us. He is who he is. And so if our God loves us, he loves us to the end. That if our God has a purpose for us, he has a purpose for us to the end. I am who I am, God says, showing us that he's eternal and unchangeable. And again, it shows us that he is self-sufficient and self-existent. 
He needs nothing outside of him because he is who he is. He didn't start. He doesn't finish. One of the confessions of the faith puts it like this when it's talking about who the nature of God. It says, God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. He alone is in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in any need of any creature which he has made. And that causes us to worship. For he is God. He truly is above us in ways we can't even fathom. That he does not need us for his purpose or for something inside of himself, but yet he chooses to love us. He chooses to come down to us. He chooses to wrap us in his arms and love us and plan for our lives. He chooses to be involved in the mess of humanity. And it causes us to worship our great God. Because our God is revealing God and he shows himself who he is as we see in Exodus chapter 3. And that God is the same God we worship, the same God that we praise today. And we should know our saving God. But he doesn't just reveal himself. Our God is also a holy God. When, when Moses comes near and he's like, oh, well, this bush is burning, but it's not consumed. I have to see this. And he walks up. What does God say? Moses, take off your sandals. For where you are is holy ground. It's not because it was a special place. It's not because the ground itself was holy. Why was it holy? Because God was there in a special way. And so when Moses came face to face with God, he was in the presence of holiness. And so take off your sandals. You cannot be in the presence. And, and, and actually, he, God further on says, don't come any closer. Because you cannot come that close to holiness. Holiness carries the sense of uh, being separated or set apart. That to be holy is to be set apart for a special purpose. And God is holy because he's utterly distinct from his creation. He is different from his creation. He is the creator. Everything else is the created. He's distinct and he's set apart. And being holy, being pure and holy, he can actually not have that intimate relationship that we were designed to have with God because of his holiness. That God's holiness is actually a problem for us. Because we were made to be with God. We were made to love God. We were made to be with him and have that relationship with him. We were made, as Adam and Eve did, to walk in the garden with God. But ever since sin, we cannot have that relationship. This is a problem of holiness. We cannot span that goth from sinful humanity to a holy God. And it sets up this problem that God is there. So much so that later on in the book of Exodus and in Deuteronomy, on this very mountain when he brings the people of Israel back, God says, if anyone goes to touch this mountain, they will die because you sinful humanity cannot live in the presence of a holy God. And this problem sets up the, the, the issue the whole Bible is seeking to address. That humanity needs a way back. Humanity needs a way back to their holy God. 
That living by rules does not do it because we fell. And that we only can get so close as we read in the Old Testament about the tabernacle and the temple. We can only get so close to that holiness and that's only through these extreme measures. But we need a way back. And that way back is provided for us in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came to bridge that gulf that we could not bridge that Jesus Christ came to save us so that we could be with our holy God. One of my favorite verses says it so well. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For our sake, He, he's talking about God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In short, God chose to make Christ, Jesus Christ, who was sinless, who was God and man, be that bridge that, bridge that spans the gap to allow now humanity to dwell with a holy God as he gives us his righteousness, takes our sin upon himself. That God's holiness makes this problem that Jesus is the solution where to know our saving God. But he does, he's not just a revealing God. He's not just a holy God. But he's also a covenant-keeping God. That many times, and I was struck just again by reading this in front of everyone, how often God says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac in the God of Jacob. He says it again and again. And he says it in the present tense, which is interesting. He's not saying, hey, I was the God of these guys who are dead. No, he says, I am the God of these guys. Why? Because they're still alive with me. Why? Because I am the covenant-keeping God. When I make promises to my people, I keep my promises. And so when I promise Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that they will be the father of a great nation, guess what? You are that great nation, and you will be great, and you will be my people. When I make them promises that they're going to be in a land flowing with milk and honey, guess what? You will be in that land, and it's going to be great if you follow my commands. And so he makes these promises, and he keeps these commandments, these, these, these covenants, because he is the covenant keeping God. He's a God who keeps his promises. When he says, he does. When he promises, he acts. He does not fail. He cannot fail. But he saves his people. He responds to people and he promises them he's going to bring them to this land and he's doing that right now through the book of Exodus. And that same, that same aspect of our God is true for us as well. That God has promised us salvation, and he brings it. That God has promised us that we can be his people, and he'll be our God, and he makes that way for us. That our God is a promise-keeping God. I was reading um, a book about Exodus by A.W. Pink. He's a He's a, a theologian. Uh, he has a book called Gleanings from Exodus, and he just has this great quote about how God is this promise-keeping, this covenant-keeping God. And he says this, Thus the Lord stood revealed before Moses as the covenant-keeping God, the God of all grace. When God picked up Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and made them the fathers of his chosen people, it was not because of their any excellence in them, seen or foreseen. Rather, it was his pure, sovereign uh, uh, understanding 
So too, now that he is about to redeem the Hebrews from the land of bondage is not because of any good in them or from them, is, is as the God of Abraham, the sovereign elector, the God of Isaac, the mighty quickener, the God of Jacob, the long-suffering one, who is about to bear his arm, display his power, and deliver his people. That's the God that he's showing up to Moses. That just as I carried my promise through with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, so he's going to do with Moses and the people of God, and so he does with us. As Pink continues, says, the God of Abraham is our, is our God, the one who sovereignly chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. The God of Isaac is our God, the one who, by his own miraculous power, made us new creatures in Christ. The God of Jacob is our God, the one who bears with us in the infinite patience, who never forsakes us, and who has promised to perfect that which concerns us. That the nature of God has revealed through the Bible again and again it's the God that we worship and we can know and respond to. He keeps his promises. And so we rejoice in that God. And this God is not a far distant God. He's a personal God. As we read this passage, we see how he knows his people, the Hebrew people, and what they're going through. He has seen the oppression. He has felt the afflictions. He has, he has heard the cry of people. He sees the, the afflictions, and now he's responding to bring them out. He's responding through calling of Moses. And this is the same thing with us, that when we cry out to God, he hears us, that we should never doubt that he sees us, that whatever we're going through, this is truth, that our God is a personal God who knows us intimately, knows us better than ourselves, and responds to our cries and has a plan for us to move us where he has us to go. Our God is a personal God. And finally, our God is a saving God. As we've seen in this passage, as we already kind of put out, that God chose to deliver his people. And I love the language that Exodus 3 uses, that he chose to come down to deliver his people. It's this great image that our almighty God, the one who is utterly di distinct, holy, the one who, who loves us and knows us and, and keeps his promises, he stoops down, he comes down, and now he's going to deliver his people. He's coming down to do this miraculous plan as he points out that he has this plan, that he's going to bring them out of, of Egypt, that he knows Pharaoh is going to reject this plan. And so he's going to have to display his power and all of these miraculous works to make Pharaoh let the people go. And when the people go, the people, their neighbors will give them jewelry and they'll give them clothes. It's, just a, it's like a Cliff Notes version of what's going to happen through the next many chapters of Exodus. It happens exactly as God says is going to happen. And that he saves his people by coming down and working his miraculous power to make it happen. And God saves us when he comes down, which I think points to Jesus Christ when Jesus came down to be one of us for us, living the life we could not live so that he could take our place upon the cross, dying the death that we all deserve. And he saves us because of that, that he is a saving God. Know our saving God. I've kind of been pointing to all of this as we've been going along, but the fact that God reveals himself and that he is holy and that he keeps his promises 
and that he's personal, and that he saves, all of these facts find their ultimate um, completion in Jesus Christ. That when we think of Jesus, how this shows us who God is, and his nature, and his character, and how he loves us, that Jesus Christ completes this revelation for us. He's the pinnacle of, of, of God's revelation that when we think of that God reveals himself and again and again we see these, these little snippets of God revealing himself to his people. Now when Jesus comes, God is fully revealed because as Jesus said, when you see me, you see the Father. That when you know Jesus, you know the Father. That Jesus is the complete revelation of God that we need to know and respond to. That we, when we think about how God answered his promises or responds to his promises, the truth is that um, <clears throat> Jesus is, is the covenant-keeping one. He is actually the fulfillment of God's promises. That all of God's promises find their yes and amen in him. That he brings all of God's promises to that completion. When we think about our holiness problem, that we cannot be in relationship with our holy God, Jesus answers that problem as we talked about, that he, spins, he bridges that gulf and he brings us into God's presence. When we think about <clears throat> excuse me, the fact that um, God is personal, Jesus is the most personal as me as he came down to live as one of us, to be with one of us, to save us, to bring um, he knows his sheep. He knows his people. He calls us out. And Jesus saves utterly and completely. That when we read Exodus, we get this hint of redemption, the salvation that God loves his people and is going to bring them out of their troubles. But it's that physical slavery. It's that being a part in the land of Egypt. But when Jesus saves us, he saves us from worse enemies than Pharaoh because he saves us from sin. He saves us from the world. He saves us from the enemy. That when Jesus saves us, he saves us completely. That when the, the, the Hebrews are being brought out <clears throat> and they complain and they groan and they incur God's wrath, that when we're saved in Christ, that is no more. For he has nothing left for us but his love as he saves us in Christ and we can dwell eternally in his arms and know he is our God and we are his people. That Jesus saves. So let's know our saving God. So what is our response as Christians as we read Exodus 3 and we see the story of Moses? How should we respond well, that means we should know who our God is, right? He's revealed himself. We should know who he is. How do we know who God is? We open up our Bibles and we read. That we actually dive into the Scriptures, the revealed Word of God that shows us who God is and we know him through his Word. That we gather with the saints and are taught who God is, and are shown what the Bible teaches about God, that we actually make an effort to know Him. That we don't just go so far and say, ah, oh, that's good. No, we make it our life's pursuit to know our amazing, saving God. That we love Him enough to dive into who He has revealed Himself to me. And so we, we know our God. We seek to know Him. Then we trust in him. 
That when we see these promises made again and again about how He's going to bring us to completion, about how He's going to work a good work in us, about how He's making us new, when we believe in Jesus, we trust Him and we rely on Him and we look to Christ as the fulfillment of all these promises. That we trust the God who has been revealed. We trust the salvation that He's brought for us. We trust Him and how He's working in our lives. And then we see how he called Moses. That we're going to see in the next few chapters how he called Moses for a purpose and a plan to save his people, to spread the word he gives to Moses. And the very fact that God calls us to salvation is not just and only just to be saved. It's called to now be his for a purpose. To follow him to follow Christ, to be theirs, to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, but also to be used by Him to spread His Word, to spread His love to those who don't know it. That we're all called, all people are called, as Moses was called, to take the Word of God to people who respond to the Word of God. That when we look at this, we too are called to lead people to know the truth, lead people to look to Christ, and they will be led from their slavery to sin. They'll be led from their slavery to fall into ways of the world that end in destruction, that they can truly respond and know salvation. And it all starts when we know our saving God. Join me in prayer. Therefore, I thank you so much for your word that we can read it and know it and understand it, that you revealed your nature through it, that we can respond to it, that we can see about how we've been called, how, we, how you have loved us, how you continue to move in us. And Lord, I just pray that we can be yours in all that we do. I pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take a moment here.